Welcome to Practically Christian. I'm Janelle and I'm here with my husband Luke. Hello. And our friend Jake. Hey guys. We share conversations that help you know Jesus more deeply and follow him more faithfully. The truth is, no one has arrived at Christ likeness. To grow in that direction, we believe you need authentic relationships and biblical theology applied to your everyday life. We hope you're encouraged to grow and to live out the biblical truths that we'll discuss on this episode. Let's get practical and dive into a conversation about theology. So this is a, the first of a series that we're going to do on theology, and in subsequent episodes, we're going to focus on the topic of creation. How did God create? What are the various Christian views on creation? And how much room for disagreement is there among Christians? In this first episode, though, we're going to listen to and then discuss a sermon that Luke recently preached at our church, Creekside Community Church, and it's going to lay the groundwork for theology and how we go about doing it. So let's listen into the sermon, and then we'll discuss it together at the end. So about 10 years ago now, I was beginning a new adventure in education. Uh, I began my Master's of Divinity degree at Denver Seminary, uh, which is probably the most pretentious uh, title for a degree in the history. Uh, I'm a master of the divine. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, But uh, immediately I started hearing all these jokes that I hadn't heard before about how seminary is like cemetery. You guys heard this before? Um, you know, like people would be like, hey, Luke, what'd you learn this week? At cemetery, ha <laughs> um, And for some people, it was just kind of this joke, but for other people, it was actually a legitimate concern. I had a few people, more than one, express concern and say, hey, is your faith doing okay? I just want to check in because I knew such and such person And they had a strong faith in God. And then they went to seminary. And because of what happened there, somehow their faith in God actually got worse. And they came out either as an unbeliever or with a weaker faith than they actually went into seminary with. Now, thankfully, that was not my experience. But we are about to jump into a series on theology, of studying God and seeking to understand him and what he is like. And some of you guys are like, yes, I can't wait. And you're just wired that way. And some of you may be very hesitant. Some of you may be even concerned because maybe you know someone who's gone through this experience where studying God actually weakens people's faith. The analogy I've heard uh, for this is that uh, for some, they think about theology like anatomy. Let me ask you, how many of you uh, dissected a frog when you were in middle school or high school? How many of you dissected a frog? Yeah, me too. Okay, good. Most of you. Um, okay, right? You, anatomy, the way it works, you cut something open, spread it apart, figuring out all the pieces. Sorry if you're eating a donut. Um, and the idea is like, that's how you understand the, the body parts of a frog and how it all goes together. Now, at the end of that process, you have two things. You have a deeper understanding of the frog, and you also have a dead frog. <laughs> The, the very process of studying the frog in that way entails killing the frog. And for some people, that's a good illustration of how they think about theology. That if you study God, you will inevitably kill your faith. That they go hand in hand. The more you study God and make it this academic thing, the more you're going to actually ruin your faith. 
Now, I, I don't think theology is like that, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, but some of you might be hesitant or have this kind of like, oh, I don't know about this the- theology thing that's dead and lifeless and academic. Here's another analogy I've heard, and maybe you're more familiar with this one. Um, people talk about the difference between knowing God versus knowing about God. You guys heard this talked about before? Knowing God versus knowing about God. I don't want to just know facts about God. I want to know Him. Now, this gets tricky because I think there is truth on one side of the equation here. And what I mean is this. I think it is actually very possible for someone to know about God and not know God. It is very possible for someone to memorize facts about God, to actually understand theology and what it teaches, and simultaneously not have a relationship with Him. And so I think some of us have seen that and understand that, and we don't want that. So like, oh yeah, I don't want to just know about God, I want to know Him. It is possible to know about God and not know Him. Um, this is like people who love a certain celebrity and study up on that celebrity. And they could tell you all the facts about that celebrity, but they have no relationship with that celebrity, right? They know about them, but they don't actually know them interpersonally. That can happen. But here's the problem. I don't think the reverse is actually true. I don't think you can know about God. Sorry, I don't think you can know God deeply and not know about him. Let me give you an example. Um, Let's say uh, you and I are strangers. We meet at a mutual friend's house, okay? And we're talking, trying to get to know each other. And you ask me like, hey, Luke, are you, are you married? I'm like, yeah, I think. Well, who, who are you married to? Oh, I'm married to, um, I, I think her name is Janelle. I think she goes by Janelle. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I don't, I don't try and busy myself with facts about my wife. I just experience her. They're like, okay, that's, that's weird. Uh, but, you know, what kinds of things do you do together? You know, like, what does she like to do? What kind of food does she like? What are your hobbies? I'm like, no, you don't understand. No, I, I think if I understood those things, it would make our relationship academic and lifeless. So I just, I just, I just know her. I don't know about her at all. Yeah, yeah that sounds uh, creepy and weird, right? That just doesn't work, right? The better you know someone the more you know about them. And so I think this is where we get this wrong. It is possible to know about God and not know him. That is possible, and we need to be careful of that. But I don't think it's possible to actually know God deeply and not know about him. And so we find theology is actually necessary. Having beliefs about God that are formed is actually part of what it means to have a relationship with God that's healthy. We should seek to know about him as we seek to grow in our relationship with him. These are supposed to go together. They're supposed to go together. All right. Uh, problem with theology number three. You, you can't not do theology. How did I say that? I don't know what I said. Problem number three. You can't not do theology. Double negatives. Um, here's what I mean. Theology just describes your set of beliefs about God. That's what it describes. And the truth is, whether you consider yourself academic or not, or smart or not, or whether or not you even consider yourself a believer, you have a set of beliefs about God. Your set of beliefs might even be that you don't think God exists. But let me ask you, 
what is that God you don't believe in like? When you think of God, what comes into your mind? So you have theology. You have beliefs about God, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you have a bunch of theology maybe you've never even thought about or realized you have. For example, let me ask you some questions and just think about your answers to these. You don't have to say them out loud. Um, should you read the Bible? How often should you read the Bible? How should you read the Bible? What is the Bible? The answers to all those questions are theological in nature. What is this book? Is it inspired? How do we read it? How did God choose to inspire it? Another topic. Do you pray? Should you pray? How do you pray? When do you pray? What kinds of things do you pray about? If you pause to think about it, how you answer all those questions entail that you have a belief about how God interacts with this world, how he responds to prayer, how deep of a relationship he wants with you. You have theology, even if you don't like theology. When you sin or mess up, do you run away from God or do you run towards him? There's a picture of who God is that lies behind your actions and affects how you relate to God. And so that's why I say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't help but do theology. You have beliefs. So the question is not, do we want to do theology or not? The question is really, do we want to do this well or not? Do we want to actually think about our beliefs and examine those and make sure they're accurate or just kind of collect them and let them influence us without thinking about it? Uh, in some ways, it's like uh, a number of years ago, I was helping someone learn guitar and grow in their guitar skills. And uh, they, they were already a pretty good guitarist. I was like, okay, for this song, I want you to do this strumming pattern. Like down, down, up, up, down, down, up, up, down, up, down, up. And they're like, no, 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 I don't use strumming patterns. And I was like, okay. And they're like, well, I just listen to the melody and I play with what fits it. It's like, okay. And then... I dropped it. I didn't, like, push the issue because I hadn't had anyone object that way. I'm like, well, maybe you do do that. That'd be cool. Uh, but the more I listened to this person, I realized, nope, they had three or four strumming patterns that they always used. They just didn't know what those were. <laughs> and so they would listen to a song, and then they would play a pattern, and they thought they were playing along with the melody, but really they were just selecting one of their patterns that fit best and using that. They had strumming patterns. They just didn't know what those were, <laughs> right? And for many of us, I think that's how we go through life with our beliefs about God, our theology. We all have theology, whether we want to or not. We have a set of beliefs about who God is and what he is like. But many of us have never taken the time to examine that. Is this good theology? All right. So here's the setup. Like, we have to do theology. Like, this is important to think about and correct our wrong understandings. But before I answer the question of how do we do that well, I want to um, talk about why it's worse than you think. Okay. Um, as soon as, so let's just say, take for granted that you're here and you're like, yes, I, okay, fine, let's do some theology. Let's figure out our beliefs. Now you run into an even bigger problem. Theology comes from two words, theologos, the study of God, theo, theos. Christians believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, 
that he's the one who created not just this world, but our solar system and galaxy and our universe that right now is 93 billion light years in diameter and increasing every single day. And the question is, that's great, but I am none of those things. I can't even begin to comprehend a being that is powerful enough to create all that. Me, who is I, who am limited by time and space to be in one spot, how can I even begin to imagine a being who many theologians believe is outside of time and space and created time and space to begin with? How do you do theology when there is no way a limited, finite human being like me or you could ever comprehend God in all his fullness and glory? So this feels like a catch-22. You have to do theology, and you can't do theology. Congratulations. You can't get by without some kind of belief in God, and yet there's no way you could understand God fully. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Here's how I think of it. And I'm going to probably stretch this metaphor to the breaking point, and I apologize. Uh, in some ways, it's like this. It's like we are all fish in an aquarium trying to understand the mind and being and person who owns the aquarium. <laughs> okay. We fish who have never lived outside of water <laughs> understand this being that's outside of this and the complexity of a human being. But that does help get at the first thing I want to say is that Theology should be one of the most humbling things we do, right? You may be incredibly intelligent. Congratulations, you're a smart fish. Like, that doesn't give you a huge competitive advantage when it comes to understanding this being outside of the aquarium. So how do we do this? How do we do theology? How do we do theology well? I want to share with you uh, from John 1 today. And I think it has some amazing things to teach us and inform us about what we must do and what we can't do, but also how, how God helps us in this endeavor. I also want to apologize. The text on the screen is a little ridiculously small. So hopefully you brought your Bible and you can read for yourself. And if not, hopefully you brought your glasses. So let's go. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. I want to talk about these verses, especially this word, word. John starts out his gospel, his account, his biography of the life of Jesus by saying, in the beginning was the word. In Greek, that's logos. In the beginning was the logos. Now, what's so cool about this is John is speaking to two different cultures and communities simultaneously. He's speaking to people in his time and context who had a Jewish upbringing and referencing Genesis 1 and their understanding of how God created the heavens and the earth. And he's also simultaneously speaking to those with a Greek and philosophical background. So in the Greek world, the word logos meant divine reason. Divine reason. Plato and uh, going all the way back to Heraclitus believed that underneath everything, the way the world is, the way it is, is because of the logos, this divine reason. So if you ask an ancient Greek philosopher and you're like, hey, you know, why is the sky blue? They might be able to conjecture for a while, 
Some of them might even think because there's water up there. <laughs> but if you kept asking them, yeah, but why is it blue? Um, you would eventually arrive too because of the logos. <laughs> it was almost their way of saying because that's just the way it is. But with that was because that's the reason at the heart of everything and underneath everything wanted it that way. That's the logos in Greek philosophy. And John says, in the beginning was that reason, that divine reason that is underneath everything was there in God. And he goes on to say, that divine reason is not a thing, it's a person. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. The word is Jesus, is what John is getting at. Now, to those with a Jewish background, it gets even more cool. Because if you go back to Genesis 1 and read the account of how God created the heavens and the earth, first it says that uh, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay? Spirit of God. Uh, in Hebrew, that's ruach, which is a fun word. Um, and it means breath or wind or spirit. They're all interrelated, Hebrew thinking. And the idea is this. Like put your hand in front of your mouth and go, oh. You feel that? That is your ruach. That's your breath or wind or spirit. And if you think about it, you know, how do you know something's alive? It has breath. It has spirit. It says the spirit of God was hovering over the water. God's ruach is hovering over creation, ready to get at work. God's life-giving power is there. Then, God speaks. All right, so work with me here. I want you to hold your hand in front of your mouth. I want you to really do this. Many of you just looked at me awkwardly last time, all right? And say, uh, say word. Say word. Word. Did you feel something? Word. You can feel breath when you speak. God's word and his spirit work together, just like they do for us. When you speak words... What is that? If you're, a truthful, if you're a truthful person, when you speak words, you are expressing yourself. You're expressing your will. And yet those words are separatable from you, but really they do actually express who you are and your desires and your thoughts, right? And so in Hebrew thinking, when it says God spoke creation, it's God's word that creates it's separatable from God, but yet it is also identical with God and expresses his character. John is also getting at that. He's saying, in the beginning was the word. God's word speaking into creation alongside the spirit. And that word is Jesus. Let's get down to uh, verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world and the world was created through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Can't help but pause here for a moment. The word became flesh, this word of God became human, and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is actually, in the original language, tabernacled. The word tabernacled among us. Set up a tent. And this goes back to the Old Testament story. 
Right after the people are brought out of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, God gives them the law, and they build a tabernacle, a tent. And later, the temple is modeled after this tabernacle. And you have different sections in the tabernacle, but at the heart of it all is the Holy of Holies. And that was where God's presence itself was, so that God could be with his people. So for an ancient Israelite, if you wanted to be in God's presence, if you wanted to hang out with God, you went to the tabernacle. That's where God's presence was. John is saying, now the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is a walking, living, breathing tabernacle, meeting place of God with humanity, walking around. And so that those who talked with Jesus were actually talking with God and meeting with God. He was showing us what God is like, and he was in himself the meeting place between God and man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the, as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. All right, here's the answer to the question. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. No fish has ever made it out of the aquarium and lived. (laughs) The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Okay, now this is ridiculous, but it's like... The aquarium owner became a fish and jumped into the aquarium to teach us and show us what God is like. The one and only God joined us in the person of his son to show us what God is like. So how do we do theology well? How do we do this? The answer is through Jesus. The path to knowing God lies through Jesus. We could not do theology if it were not for God willing to reveal himself to us. But God is gracious to us and loves us and so became one of us to show us what God is like and to reveal himself to to us. So the path to knowing God lies through Jesus. Now this brings up an important point uh, with theology and how theology is actually different than uh, most other sciences out there. Think about, I don't know, uh, the weather, studying the weather, anyone's goal with that is to understand it completely, right? We have this um, idea that if we had the right questions, the right instruments, and the right tests, we could figure out the weather completely, right? I mean, Colorado is living proof that you can't do that, but that's the goal, right? (laughs) That's the goal. That's the assumption. We could figure this out completely. We could know the weather completely and how it works, and that's what we're trying to do. With theology, that's not the case, We admit that because we're finite, limited human beings, we could never know God completely. We could never know all there there is to know of God. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to know all that we can know of God correctly. That is our goal. Okay, one more time. I promise this is the last time, okay? (laughs) Fish in the aquarium will never understand the person outside the aquarium completely. Their brain just cannot comprehend that. But they can know 
That that being is not a shark. Just because they will never know that being completely, they can know it correctly, more and more correctly over time. And that's what we're doing with theology. We'll never know God completely, but our goal is to seek to know him more and more rightly, more and more correctly, more and more accurately over time. So let's pause, and I want to ask you a question to consider. According to the book of Acts, uh, John, the one who wrote this gospel, was an uneducated, untrained fisherman, a day laborer, regular average guy. My question is this. How did this untrained, uneducated fisherman come up with this level of amazing theological insight? To draw together the creation story from Genesis and the person of Jesus and realms of what Greek philosophy taught and the person of Jesus. Like, how did John do theology? How did he go from uneducated, untrained fisherman to someone who could say this that is so profound? Answer that question. Skip over a few more verses. Uh, John 1, 35. The next day, John, now pause. This is not John, the one who wrote this gospel. There are a number of Johns in the New Testament. This is John the baptizer, okay? So John, the one who baptized Jesus, uh, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Now pause a second. What do you think these disciples are looking for at this point? What's the question on their heart and mind? Yeah, are you the Lamb of God? Is this man really the Lamb of God? And what does that mean? Don't you think? That's what they're thinking about. Jesus turns and asks them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? (laughs) Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, I think these guys wimped out. Either they were intimidated by Jesus because he was a great teacher or they'd, maybe they thought it would be rude to ask him directly or they didn't even know what question to start with. I don't think the question in their hearts and minds was, where are you staying, Jesus? And so Jesus denounces their unbelief, right? No, he doesn't. Just come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. And so those disciples followed Jesus that day and come and see and they learn more about Jesus and they have different questions the next day. And as you turn the pages of the gospel, you find out these disciples stick with Jesus for three years through these amazing events like Jesus walking on water and feeding 5,000 people and dying and then rising from the dead. And slowly, their beliefs about Jesus are deepened by coming, seeing over and over again. So, here's what I think this looks like, okay? If theology is, woo, scary.
I'm a visual person, so I can't help but draw stuff to explain stuff. Sorry, bear with me. Um, here's how it has worked for these disciples. They came to Jesus with certain beliefs and understandings about who this person was, right? This is a rabbi teacher. They call him rabbi. Okay, here's a rabbi. John says he's a lamb of God. Don't really know what that means. <laughs> they come to Jesus with their beliefs. Jesus says, come and see. Be with me. Spend time with me. And they have an encounter with Jesus. They see him heal people. They hear him teach. And their understanding of who Jesus is and what God is like is challenged. And now they have a choice. The choice before them is, you can go back and be John the baptizer's disciple if you want. Or you can stick with Jesus and continue this journey of figuring out who this amazing man is. Right? You can move away from understanding Jesus more deeply. Or you can draw closer to him and your beliefs will be deepened. Encounter with Jesus leads to a choice. Will you allow your beliefs about Jesus to be challenged? Not necessarily corrected, although sometimes that's necessary, but deepened. And if you say yes to that invitation, then now your beliefs are a little different. Oh, Jesus, a little more deeply. And then you have another encounter with Jesus. And you have another choice. Will you go deeper or not, or stay the same? And what happened for the disciples is this kept happening for three years and beyond. And at the end, they didn't make it quite here, and I don't think any of us will, but they got closer. They knew Jesus better at the end of all of that. So that at the end of three years, John the disciple went from being someone who says, uh, <clears throat> where are you staying? <laughs> to, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's theology grew and deepened by walking with Jesus because the path to knowing God lies through Jesus. So what does this look like for us, okay? They had the advantage back then of they could literally follow Jesus around and spend time with him. We don't get that privilege, but we do get other privileges. Now we have the writings of the apostles preserved in the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament we have biographies of Jesus from four of his followers written down for us to study. So we have scriptures. We can connect with Jesus through scripture. We have the gift of prayer. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts with us. And most importantly, according to Acts and Paul's letters, is that the church community is the body of Christ. We've been talking about that in our connection groups. How we through God's Spirit, are given different gifts, and we're supposed to use those. And as we use those, we actually continue Jesus' ministry. Which means this, you still can have encounters with Jesus because he is still living and working through our church community. And so, even so today, the ideal is you have your beliefs about Jesus, and you have an encounter with Jesus. Connection group, or prayer, or Bible study. Maybe and a message, and you have a choice. How will you respond? Will you let that deepening process happen, or will you stay the same, or will you step away? And we are always going through this. 
so the invitation is to step closer to Jesus. So what this means is uh, humility is essential. We already talked about that. Humility is essential in doing theology because we will never know God completely. But our goal is to seek to know him more clearly and more deeply over time as we walk with him and encounter him and are challenged by him. Humility is essential, though. Uh, Let me ask you a question to get this. I I heard this recently in a TED Talk, and it's too good because it related to this so well. They were making a different point, but I think it's so true. Uh, Here's a question. I want to hear your answers. Uh, The question is this. What does it feel like to be wrong? What does it feel like to be wrong? It's a real question. You can give a real answer. It's okay. Scary. Scary. Feels scary to be wrong. All right, what else? Embarrassing? Is it what you said? Yep. Good. What else? Like I swallowed a rock and Brian? Sometimes grateful. Yeah. If, if you're wrong about something that you were sad about or something that, yeah. Sometimes being wrong can be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. What else? Anything else? Humbling. Humbling. Good. All right. I don't like in general doing like kind of like gotcha moments, but... <laughs> All of you answer the question, actually, so what does it feel like to find out that you are wrong? But the way it actually feels to be wrong is exactly the way it feels like to be right. What I mean is this. When you're wrong about something, you don't know you're wrong about something. If you knew you were wrong about it, you wouldn't believe it. What it feels like to be wrong is exactly the same as it feels like to be right. All of us have certain things we believe about God that probably need to be challenged. And if we already knew those things were wrong, we would already change those. The difficulty in theology is to walk with Jesus open-handedly and being willing to be corrected because that's uncomfortable. And to admit that maybe I could be wrong about this. So humility is essential. So uh, what do we do this? this uh, my encouragement to you is to be open to correction. As we engage in this series over the next few weeks, the invitation is not to simply come and learn about God. The invitation is to know God more deeply so you can walk with him more closely. Our hope is that you would not just deepen your knowledge about God, but your relationship with God would be deepened. I know some of you still maybe are hesitant about theology. It still sounds kind of academic. But my hope is that you'll find that it's not. It's actually extremely practical. And it's corrective. Janelle and I have been working on, um, in our relationship, on uh, applying the five love languages. Any of you familiar with that book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages? So uh, one of Janelle's top five love languages is words of affirmation. One of mine is acts of service. So which means... Uh, I tend to feel love and express love by doing things for people. Janelle tends to feel love and express love by words of encouragement and affirmation and praise, which is great, except for it's very difficult to communicate when you have different love languages. So we'll be sitting there, and I'm like doing the dishes. Why? Because I love Janelle doing acts of service for her. And she could be thinking in her mind, like, why won't he just talk to me? Why didn't he encourage me today? Like, does he even notice all the things I do? Or vice versa. 
uh, Janelle will sit there like complimenting me like, you did such a good job with the kids. And in my head, I'm like, thanks, but if you really appreciate me, why didn't you make dinner tonight? <laughs> why did I have to do it? All right, it's ridiculous. But this kind of thing happens, right? And many of you who are married have experienced this, right? You know what I'm talking about? And we're working on this. And to be honest, I kind of stink at it. I'm trying to grow in my words of affirmation. And I'm trying to learn what actually counts as words of affirmation. Because it's not the way I would think of it. <laughs> Sometimes I give Janelle a compliment. She's like, thanks. But that's not, that's not what you think it is. That doesn't actually. <laughs> Which is good. And I appreciate the feedback. Because I want us to get closer over time. I've seen too many relationships where the husband and wife just get into a rut. And they've been married for 50 years, and they're no closer relationally than they were 40 years ago. And I don't want that for us. I want every year for us to be a little closer. It's the exact same with your relationship with God. It is possible to be a Christian for 50 years and be no closer to him than when you you gave your life to him. But you don't want that. God doesn't want that. So how do you keep that from happening? Well, it's going to take some uncomfortability to be willing to press in and learn more about who God is really like, what he is really like. And it's going to take intention to maybe do some things differently going forward. Just like it takes me intention to try and use words of affirmation. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't come naturally. Some of this might be uncomfortable and not come naturally. But that's okay because the invitation is to get, be closer to Jesus at the end of all this, to know God more deeply. And so I just want to encourage you, wherever you are in this process, if you've been circling at the same level for years, all right, step in. Step in. The invitation is open to all of us to draw closer to God and to have a closer relationship with Jesus and know him more deeply. The path to knowing God lies through Jesus. Now let me pray for us and then we're going to sing together. Jesus, I thank you that you gave yourself for us, not only to save us, but to reveal yourself to us so we can know who you are, so we can know you correctly. God, it can be uncomfortable to open our hands and to seek to allow ourselves to be corrected. But the end of that is to know you better. And so God, I pray we would not turn away from that process. I pray over the coming weeks, we would be open to the ways you want to challenge our understanding of you and deepen that. Now the end result would not be that we simply know more about you, but that we know you more deeply. God, grow us in our understanding of you and grow us too in our walk with you and our relationship with you. Help us to live in light of the truth of all of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The application from Luke's message was to cultivate humility. So in that vein, how open-handed do you guys think you are with theology? And how, like, how humble do you think you are with your theology? Hmm. I would say I'm, I take a very defensive posture with certain people or certain groups of people, I want to say, um, which conveys a lack of humility when you take a defensive posture. So I would say I have a mixed, in general, I would like to think of myself as open-minded, but I know that in reality, 
depending on who I'm talking to, I can kind of get that, like, I want to say thick headed, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. I will not budge on this because I don't trust you to be a source of theological truth. Um, So I don't always have that mindset that I could get truth from people that I don't agree with in every area. Mm -hmm. Could you like just describe what you mean by defensive posture? Yeah, I think, for instance, if you, if I know that you're into new age Spirituality. spirituality, anything you say, regardless of whether or not it has a ring of truth, mm-hmm. I am like that suspect. Hmm. I don't believe you. Like, I don't know. I have like a, I think I just, I know that there's a lot of, and I think in some ways it's understandable and in some ways it's, it's good to be cautious, right? You're not, you're not supposed to open your mind so that your brain falls out. You know, that's what I've heard. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, I, I just think that in general, I, I don't take a, like, let me listen to you and mm-hmm. figure out what, where you're coming from and, and let me find out how this really meshes with my understanding. A lot of times I have more of the mentality of like, I need to preserve my, my own understanding and I don't want to even listen to something mm-hmm. that's different. Yeah. So that's what I meant by just defensive where it's almost like if I haven't heard this before, I don't. Mm-hmm. want to trust it or I don't even want to go there or something and I think that's not a healthy attitude that I need to work on I think that's kind of funny because the way I describe my posture is aggressive <laughs> because I like to summarize my thought it's like I when I believe something I'm going to defend it and argue it as best as I can and if someone else convinces me then I'm going to switch what I believe and I'm going to argue and defend that as best as I can but I'm not going to like let it go without making the best argument I can mm-hmm. think of. Partly so that, like, when I am convinced, I don't go, oh, maybe I wasn't convinced, you know, out of the best argument, but, like, I'm going to make the best argument. So it's kind of, like, open-handed, but it might not seem that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I try to be really open-handed mm-hmm. with it, but I make sure that, like, I vet mm-hmm. very hard, like, very, I don't know, at a, at a high level what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think it's funny on a personality level because I'm an internal processor and you're an external processor. So your way of processing theology is arguing through it and talking through it. And I'm like the total opposite. Like if someone shares something that challenges my beliefs, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to sit down for a week and think about that by myself. (laughs) Not I'm going to have a verbal sparring match with you (laughs) to see if it's real. I'm probably the most passive aggressive of us three. So I probably would be like, mm, that's interesting in the moment. And then later I'd be like, and I disagree with them because of this and because of that and because of this other thing. So, yeah. yeah. I think one of the, the a good line to remember mm-hmm. in this whole discussion is all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. Not saying like, you know, that we should accept everything, but that there are some things that can be true, even if people don't arrive at it through Christian thought. Yeah. And anything that is true was made by God in that way. And so we should take hold of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And heard from um, behavioral psychology, the genetic fallacy is the thinking that says, um, because I don't trust the source, everything that comes from that source must be wrong. Um, where you, but the truth is like, we've all learned things and can find good things even from quote unquote bad sources or that, are otherwise unreliable. And like Janelle said, that doesn't mean like, yeah, open yourself up to every opinion. And so my answer to the question is, is I think I used to be much more open-handed and maybe I'm just justifying myself. 
but I think I'm less open-handed now, but that is on the backside of like a lot of theological training and drawing out the set of beliefs that I have personally been given and have been passed on to me and I've absorbed from others and like trying to line that up with scripture and see really what is true. So I feel like I've gone through a lot of that process with my training. And so there's certain questions that people bring up like, oh, I don't know about this. And and my response is like, well, yeah, I I struggled through that. I was open-handed about that question at one time, but that's kind of been settled for me. So if new information comes up, maybe I'd revisit it. But if it's like the same old arguments I've heard before, I'm kind of like, yeah, I already know where I stand on that. I don't know. Is that not open-handed or is that... Yeah, I think that's probably appropriate. I mean, I think that we should hold on to the things that we hold to be true for good reason. (laughs) So, um, like, it would take someone a really difficult time to convince me that I shouldn't have married Luke. Like, I'm sorry, I made that decision, and I make that decision daily to be, you know, married. And it's like... No matter how hard it is. Yeah, it's... But, but just, like, that, that attitude of, like once a certain decision point has been made, Mm -hmm. it's like you are in a groove and that's not a bad thing that you're in the groove. Yeah. But you know, you shouldn't be totally close to ever listening to any criticism or thought. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, with the application being like cultivating humility, Mm -hmm. what is a time that you've cultivated humility well, or that has like humbled you? I mean, for me, one of the things that like helps me have that perspective of how little I am is being alone in nature. So I think, like, if you're out... I mean, this isn't necessarily alone, actually. Like, if you're camping and the stars are bright, just, like, looking at the sky, the night sky, and realizing how huge our own galaxy is and how huge the universe is. And, like, God just made all of that is mind-blowing to me. And then in a similar way, um, like, going on hikes or walks, um, just exploring creation... Um, by myself especially is more when I'm not focused on other people I want to say or relationship as much and I'm just more focused on the beauty of creation I feel like sometimes I I have moments in creation where I'm like wow like god you're so creative and this is so beautiful and I can't believe you have the you know being that made all this and it's just pure gift in so many ways Yeah, Luke's a space nut. He wanted to be an astronaut as a child so um, I have kind of a more say my earthy earthy an earthy take on it which i more grounded <laughs> grounded yes <laughs> i love gardening i love plants i love things growing from nothing like well not nothing but just Some from seeds. dirt you could have dirt and a seed and then you could have a productive plant from it it just is like amazing to me like germinating seeds is seriously like blows my mind and um so yeah that's kind of more where i'm like god made everything from nothing and then kind of a microcosm of that is God making beauty and growth and food from almost nothing (laughs) from these little tiny seeds of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, genetic material that produce food for us. It's just incredible to me. So yeah, I would say admiring plants, which is the Mm -hmm. middle of winter in Colorado right now. So it's not the best. Mm -hmm. It'll be spring by the time this releases though. So maybe for everyone out there in the listening world, you guys can appreciate the, yeah, growth. How about you, Jake? Yeah. So for me, I, I think of this time I was actually at, uh, helping with summer camp with mm-hmm. Creekside Community Church. And 
um, one of the, the kids brought up this idea of pacifism mm-hmm. and my immediate response was like, that's dumb. Like, that's like, why would you believe that? Like, haven't you seen all of these things in the Bible? And then right afterwards, Luke was like, yeah, I'm a pacifist. <laughs> and uh, I think that really humbled me of like, wow, I shouldn't just throw that away like on, like, on, like just offhand. And so I think my biggest one being an out loud processor is... <laughs> Um, talking to people and talking with people who disagree with me, who I respect. Mm. Um, yeah. So along with kind of what we were talking about with getting the proper sp- perspective and getting humbled by that, what is something that you can do for five minutes or more over the next week um, that will help you get that perspective? And do that thing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to yep. do with my plants. I'm gonna do. Yeah. I don't. I don't think we have to answer this one. Look at the stars. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to someone who disagrees with you. It's fair. Be yeah. humbled by someone you respect. You have to find someone you respect, <laughs> and you have to have them say something that you disagree with. Yes. Unplanned. Yes. That's what you have to. Un- do. Unplanned. Are yes. you gonna do that in five minutes? What <laughs> <laughs> I said or more. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna go out with a blessing. Uh, may you be humble before God this week. May you realize that he is bigger than anything you can understand. And may you grow in your walk with him. 